Well, uh, I want to say, and may, how many of you here last week? Last week, you guys are troopers. Um, you survived, Bobby. You know the young guy preaching. No, he did a great job, didn't he? Easy front row. I will say though, I'm not going to stoop to the depths that he did to try to, you know, appeal to the audience by throwing candy. Um, this is just a really low ball method of of trying to actually teach. We'll work on that with him. No, I. <laughs> I listened to it, it was great, wasn't it? And we've been in this series in Ecclesiastes. And uh, the series we chose, maybe in some level of ignorance and stupidity, because this is like a, a journal entry. And if you've read someone's journal entry, especially in times of pain, uh, they can be messy. And we find a person who gets the kingdom of Israel uh, to be king, at a very young age, from his father David, we find that he is given this kingdom and he, in a, humbly, a humble way, comes to God and says, I, I can't lead this nation. I don't have what it takes. And so he asks for wisdom to rule and God gives it to him. And as Bobby said last week, and we talked about that this is not to be compared with God's wisdom. God's wisdom is supreme. It's ultimate. But God gives him Earthly wisdom. He gives him wisdom to rule a nation. God's so impressed, though, with Solomon's not asking for money, fame, power, that he gives it to him anyway. And so we find the story of Solomon unfolds through several books of the Bible, but three that he writes, Song of Songs, at a very young age, the love book. It's a book that would make marriages blush because it's very sexual in nature. And yet it's also a metaphor of a God that loves us and pursues us like in a love relationship. He then, though, moves out of that kind of youthful stage into the proverbial stage. It's the Proverbs. And he writes over 3,000 different Proverbs. And these are, are not like factoids, but they're, they're truths that have... There's, there's a cause and effect to them. So it's if you put your hand to the plow and work really hard, you know, there's probably going to be something good in the other side. And so there's these great proverbs that we've latched on in the Christian community for centuries. And so Solomon, young, youthful, loves God, humble before him. God gives him wisdom. He writes the proverbs. But he's also got wealth. And he begins to acquire power. We know that he has over a thousand wives, 300 mistresses, wealth beyond measure, power beyond measure, chariots. And we find that Solomon began to pursue maybe happiness in a different way, in a different path, apart from God himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a German, uh, he was a German pastor, a Lutheran pastor, a theologian, wrote many great works, The Cost of Discipleship, one of them. But he was anti-Nazi. He was a German during World War II and moved to the States for refuge, but then moved back to stand with those Jews in those camps. Uh, he would later be tried and then hung. Uh, but he talks about this beautiful picture. He says, when we pursue happiness, we never find it. But when we pursue God, we find happiness. 
It's a very powerful truth, and we see that Solomon is finding his, his search has gone away from God, that he's beginning to look for sexual pleasure, for wives, for power, for money, all these different ways that he thought he could find it, and he doesn't. And now we land in Ecclesiastes. And why many people don't take on this book, and maybe we should have saw, had second thoughts, but it's, it's messy. It's not like texts that we can look a narrative, a story that's very clear, and, well, that's the story, and there's an instruction there, there's application. Or an instructional text that says, here's how we're to behave or act as Christ followers. We're in the mess, and Bobby mentioned this last week, of just someone pouring out of their pain of their heartache, of, as Solomon will say, meaningless. (sighs) That breath that you can't really capture. So we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I want to talk a little bit about relationships, and that's what he's going to dive into in this text. He's going to talk about the idea of loneliness and and not having people in our lives. And, And we'll make some application in some of his verses, but I want to talk about friendships. How many of you this morning, just by show of hands, would say that you have good friends? Raise your hand. Because So there's a lot of you that aren't raising your hand, so I'm a little bit worried for you this morning because uh, you maybe want a friend. But let, let's ask a different question. How many of you would say you are a great friend? Raise your hand. Less, fewer hands went up. And you're laughing, so I'm not sure what that means. Uh, I'm a terrible friend, or no. Uh, maybe we should ask that. How many of you are horrible friends? Ah. There's something about us that God designed in us that's made for one another. It goes all the way back to Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. God creates the heavens and earth. He creates this magnificent earth. Could you imagine being Adam stepping into the garden? No pollution. No crazy weather patterns. Amen? Yeah. Like 75 all year round. Uh, No road noise. No construction on 41. Uh, Could you imagine him stepping into that, to that moment? I mean, that's like a heaven video we want to, to watch. What would that look like? And we're promised later that the earth will be restored. But... But imagine Adam there, and then God says, he's excited about what he's created, but he looks and says, I'm paraphrasing, it says, it's not good. And you're wondering, was there a mistake? Was there a flaw? No, it's not complete. And he says, Adam is alone. And this is less about a marriage conversation, but it's that God desires that we be connected to people. Because the the Trinity itself, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, models for us this beautiful triune relationship, and we are called into that same type of relationship with God and others. Most of your Bible will continually instruct out, whether indirect or directly, to love God and others, to love God and others. Your Christian faith is personal, but not meant to be lived in private. It's to be lived out in public with people. It's why we say often, this is not a church. This is a campus. 
We are the church. You and I are the church. And when we stand up and greet one another, we are the body of Christ united together and we were called and meant and designed to be together. There's something about relationships that we long for. Now, now there's a phenomenon going on. The last decade, I think Facebook celebrated its 10 years. Look at this, 72% of online adults use social networking sites. Social networking has become the way people now begin to connect. Now, in some good ways, but maybe some in negative ways. And maybe we've watered down this idea of friendship and relationships. There's 1.19 billion active Facebook users per month. The, the, the craziness of Facebook. Just by show of hands, how many of you are, have a Facebook account? Just confession, yeah. So look at that. Look at that. Crazy. Now Facebook could be a really dark place because it's, I think, a place for a lot of cowardly conversation. Can we use it that way? Where we're going to throw darts about politics and life and and we're going we're gonna to do that when they would never talk that way in front of somebody. Yet, it's an interesting study. Now, I studied uh, this, this week about what are some of the, what's the psychology around our hunger for social networking. Look at this. 74% of people use their cell phone for real-time location-specific information. That means there is something in us that is longing to share our moments with people. And it's interesting that we find ourselves in front of computers or phones longing for connection when really the connection should happen real time, but, but we long for it, don't we? There's something about it. Now studies go on and on about this, about the, even the psychology of you friending somebody. There are studies, believe it or not, about what's going on, your desire to, to call someone friend. Now, I didn't read any studies about unfriending. Um, that's just interesting, you know. If you've ever been unfriended, that's like a disturbing reality. What do you mean, I'm no longer friend? But there are these studies about even you when you have a moment. Now, I know we went on family vacation this last week. You'll see in a minute. But I, there are, I, I'm like an Instagram guy, so I like taking pictures and sometimes I'm wondering, why am I not enjoying just the moment of people in front of me? And I'm taking pictures, and then I want other people to see it. There's something in us that's hungering and desiring to be connected and known by others. We want to share those moments. Jesus in Luke chapter 5. It's a great story. Luke chapter 5, there's this great story where this man is crippled from birth. And the picture is that they put him on a stretcher, and we assume there's four that grab the corners of this stretcher and want to get him in front of Jesus because they hear he could heal them. There's a possibility that Jesus could actually heal their friend. What well, the beautiful part of this is that they can't get in. The crowd's too big inside this home. And in, in Israel, when they were building homes at this time in these structures, the, roof, the roofs were like a thatch roof. They were like sticks and, and hay and mud packed in. And so they have no way to get in. So they heave him up on the side of this house. Could, could you imagine the picture? Now, I wonder what these guys had tried in the past. These four friends, like, we're going to help. Let's just say it's Ralph. You know, we're going to fix Ralph. We've made him a goat buggy or something to get around. 
He's crippled. I mean, could you imagine friends trying to help another friend make sense of life if they were crippled? And so there they find they're going to get this moment where they can get him in front of Jesus. And could you imagine the energy these four friends have? Getting him up the side of this roof. There's another video that would be great. It would be like hilarious videos in heaven, you know, watching that unfold. But they get him on top, and they get on that roof, and they have to dig. Now, imagine if you're Jesus now, speaking. Suddenly a little dust falls in the center group here in the front. And then a little bit more. Now chunks start to fall, and you're like, and down comes the friend, lowered or this, this crippled man, lowered by four friends. Now I love, in verse 20 it says this, and Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. Assuming that probably not even the crippled guy, it's the four friends. It's the four friends that take on the case of their friend and put him in front of Jesus. There's something about relationships when we have people extending themselves that way and even more so when we do that in Christian community that when we're laying one another before Christ as friends to try to help us find healing in front of him. That's so powerful. Now, another study I read this week uh, is from Dunbar and this is research done about your capacity for relationships. They say you can only handle about 150 friends. Now, Trish and I had done a, a small group in California years ago, and we read Randy Frazee's book called Making Room for Life. Now, we had done this study. It was interesting. And I, we chuckle because he talks about the circles of friendships. Some of you, how many of you have childhood friends growing up in the neighborhood you're still friends with? Yeah, childhood friends. How about, raise your hands, friends from uh, like high school, high school friends, yeah. Then you have college friends that you don't hang out much because they were crazy, right? Uh, then you have work friends, and then you have, you have church friends, and the circles just get huge. And Frazee talks about you can't manage all those. Those really aren't all your friends. I remember I taught that, and we had a couple people leave our small group offended saying that I thought I was saying they couldn't be friends with those people anymore. How dare you? But the reality is we can't manage that many relationships. It's, it's too much. So the level of relationships change. And so he talks about you basically, you and I can handle about five. Now, give or take some, who knows, what we call companions, intimate relationships with people that are closest to us. The circle expands out to about 15, then it goes to about 50, and then it goes to about 80, which we would call acquaintances. Everybody else, you unfriend outside of that circle. <laughs> I'm just joking. But it's interesting in our culture. We, we struggle to, to make sense of all the circles of people in our lives. Well, let me ask you a question this morning. Who are your five? Or maybe even appropriate to Luke chapter 5, who are the four? Who, who are the four that would lower you in front of Jesus? That would risk all to put you in front of the maker? I think this picture this morning is important for us 
Because we're going to see Solomon, who's struggling in chapter 4, trying to make sense of watching oppression and watching people work hard and realizing all that he's built, he's going to leave it to who, and he doesn't even know who, and will they steward it well? He's, he's finding a sense of loneliness in the midst of great wealth and royalty and power and pleasure. I mean, he could have anything he wants. There are studies out there also that look into about when people win the lottery. And you know they found two different scenarios that unfold for people who win large amounts of money. Because don't we all have that, maybe that little cloud here thinking if we just had a little bit more to fix up the place, to take that vacation. And those aren't bad things, but when we pursue that for happiness, they found that when someone wins the lottery, they either, their happiness does not change because their relationships stayed the same. Or they find it declines rapidly because they lost relationships because of the money. I wonder if Solomon, in the midst of his great wealth, his great power, finds himself, you know, with, I don't know, 100,000 people that think they know him. And he doesn't have four. He doesn't have 15. Dunbar goes on to talk about the circles. The circles basically are, are, are show us that the trust increases and the intimacy increases as we go into the middle. And so you, you could even right now in your head start to kind of measure out friendships. And this doesn't mean they're less than. It just means you don't have the capacity to continue to stay in touch with. I have very good friends that were large parts of my spiritual upbringing and my shaping in my life that I no longer stay in touch with would consider them a good friend, but they're not an intimate friend any longer. doesn't mean I unfriended them. It just means that they're not as connected to where I'm at in my life. I have often said that the people closest to me will know my family the best because that, that circle is around my family world and the church world for me. Trisha and I have recognized if, if people aren't a part of our family or our body, it's hard for us to extend ourselves beyond that because we're giving our lives to that. So Dunbar goes on to this study, but Bonhoeffer kind of makes an interesting statement. He says, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. So he gives this balance it says, each of us, by, or each by itself, has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. I think this morning, we're not saying that you should always be with people. This is, this is not what we're talking about this morning. We're not saying that you should always be in a crowd. There are people, and it, it typically happens in a younger age, that we're addicted to the events. We always have to be in front of people or around people, and that's where we find our security. We, we need to find times of solitude. But what I want to latch on to here is Bonhoeffer gives us this picture of, of saying that when you forget that fellowship is a necessary part of how you were created, we're not talking just sitting in chairs on Sunday. 
We're not talking about just you have a thousand Facebook friends. We're not talking about people that you can just say hi to and maybe even know their name. We're talking about those closer circles, those 15, that 5, that 4, that know you. I think we find Solomon this morning struggling to find that. Now, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we'll just read the text. Again, mind you that this is a journal entry. This is like low points of your life that you might get out a piece of paper and a pen and start to scribble down. Why, God? Where are you? These, these types of, of questions. Psalms 22, it's David himself, as we heard from John Dixon, saying, why, why, God, have you forsaken me? There's a cry out here. So listen to Solomon's words. Again, I looked, and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter, no one to give them refuge. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. Man, watch the evening news, right? We see that day in and day out in our country and all over the world throughout history. Oppression. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born. Sounds like Job, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw all the toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless in chasing after the wind. Is that not a picture of our culture today? The haves and the haves not, the commercials we see, the, the ads in the magazines, all of that pressuring us to saying, you're not enough, you don't have enough. And we find ourselves, much like Solomon, pursuing happiness with things and stuff and accomplishments. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. It's people that work and work and work and work, and they're chasing after something that they'll never attain, contentment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you won't find happiness when you pursue happiness. You find happiness when you pursue God. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Verse 13, better a poor, uh, better a poor but wise youth than an old, an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. Solomon. Who is he speaking about? The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty with his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This, too, 
is meaningless. Chasing after the woman, we find ourselves at our picture. <sighs> meaningless. It's like vapor from a breath in, cold, in a cold morning. Solomon is not content. And he, yet he latches on in this, in this chapter with some verses that I think we can hold on to to look at how God's designed us and wired us and affirms throughout Scripture that we've been designed for relationships. Joe himself, for 25 years, the pastor previous to myself, who many of you still know and we love him, but there probably was not a Sunday in 25 years that he didn't talk about what? Relationships. Why is that so important? Because when the church gets hooked on campuses or places or programs or titles, it loses its perspective. It loses the idea that you have been called the church because of Christ in you. And why we gather every week is so that we can relate to one another and call each other to a higher calling. We can lower each other in front of the maker. Solomon's going to talk about these four verses. And I, I want to use these for three reasons or three things friendships can do for you and I. What they do do for us when they're centered around Christ. This is not an assumption that all your friends are doing this for you. Some of us have bad friends, right? And some of you confess that you are a bad friend. You're not a good friend. And maybe this morning this calls us to a higher calling. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one or anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together and keep warm, but how can one be warmed alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Let's look at three observations. First, friends make us better. Friendships make you a better person. Now, I'm not talking about like you're, you're better in God's eyes because you're behaving better. They sharpen us to put ourselves back on the path of what our lives are supposed to be about. If you are a Christ follower this morning, your life is to be about following Jesus. There is no variation from this. Any other church that gathers to tell you that life is about something else, it is about following Jesus. We call ourselves Christ followers. Do you know that in Green Bay, there was a study done by the Barna Research Group, 74% of people that live in Green Bay and Appleton consider themselves only a casual Christian. What does that mean? It means, number one, I don't have to gather with believers. Church attendance is fickle. Gathering together becomes, eh, we'll see. Now, this is not shaming you, but it's, it's an interesting perspective because we find ourselves struggling sometimes to make connections in church because who's here this week? The second thing is that there's not a concern for reading the Bible, the Scriptures. So in a week's time, a casual Christian doesn't see the value for attending, won't probably read their Bible, 
because that's not their main pursuit. The third thing is they don't pray. They're not diligent prayers. They don't, maybe once in a while, maybe if there's a hospital run. And so what we find is how do you stay sharp? How do you stay in front of Jesus? Well, Solomon's saying here, they make us better. They can make us better. He said in Proverbs, Solomon said it this way, open rebuke is better than hidden love. Wounds inflicted by the correction of a friend prove he is faithful, and the abundant kisses of an enemy show his lies. I can tell you of the people in my life that have been closest to me have hurt me the deepest. Now there's a difference here. I'm not talking about Facebook wounds, right? The politics, the, the cowardly, how dare you? You know, that, that's just, that's not even relationships to me. We're talking about someone who walks up, who's done that to me. Elders have done that for me. Staff has done that to me. My family has done that. Troy, that's not the path that we're supposed to be walking. It's not a wound in, in creating some sort of separation like saying, I'm better than you. It's saying, I'm going to have to cut you right now. Because you have been made for more than this. Proverbs 27, 17. In the same way iron sharpens iron, that grinding, the person sharpens the character of his friend. Why is it that when someone says something to us that we're so ready to defend? Is it we're so concerned about our projecting something more than what we really are? Are we so worried about our little self-image that we can't be wrong? Great wisdom given to me by someone who used to cut me deep said never, never worry about the messenger. Always listen to the message. And he used the story of Balaam, the donkey. You know when the donkey talks out loud to Balaam? In other words, it says, don't look at the donkey, listen to the message. Do you know, even that people are trying to harm me, I have found that the message almost always has some truth. Who are the people in your life that are ready to get out whatever necessary to bring the wound that's going to make you better, that's going to put you back on that path? When I stand up and marry couples, I call the people sitting in the audience, you're supposed to hold them accountable. And we see so much in Christian community and just let it go. And I would say to you, those aren't friends. Friends that don't call you back to Jesus aren't your friend. Now, I would also say friends that try to Bible slap you and knock you over and saying how unrighteous you are isn't the same method either. Well, who is it in your life pulls you closer to Jesus. This is uh, our daughters and my wife and I, and we just had family vacation this week. Uh, I got really used to, uh, accustomed to sleeping in, so this morning was really early. But this is up in Door County. There is no other group I'd rather be with than this group right here. Lauren flew in. She works at LA City Hospital. 
She was there, for, we had her for, what, five days? Oh, we just long to be together. But can I tell you, it wasn't just party and vacation the whole week. There were some wounds. One ride was in the car and talking to one of my daughters and saying, Dad, i got to tell you something. And out came the knife. And it was true. And it made me better. We had several conversations that week, I think, in different pockets that were what we call sharpening and moments where it hurt. And I'm not sitting here just saying, get ready, people, go invite a friend to cut you up. It's, it's <laughs> our human nature alone does not allow for ourselves to grow. And you grow when you have people that care enough to tell you the truth. You shouldn't be living that way. You shouldn't be speaking like that. You shouldn't treat the person that way. You shouldn't spend your money this way. And it's not about shoulds, but it's a calling back of putting people back in front of Jesus. So one of our conversations was a hard conversation. And I like Instagram. I got, you know, I'm on Instagram probably too much, but I... uh, I love taking pictures. I'm like a photo junkie. And in the middle of this conversation on the beach that we're staying at, this is the picture. In the middle of the wounds, the knives that are coming out. And I'm not saying hurtful knives. Like it's probably the way you hold them, right? This is like stay away from that person. (laughs) It's it's that surgery of i got to share this with you. And it was that leaning in. This was unfolding in front. I, and we're, we're all apologizing. I'm sorry, we've got to take a picture of this. <laughs> but how appropriate that there, our Bibles tell us the promise of a God that pursues us like a lover is saying that when we love God and we begin to love others this way, there's this promise that you're going to grow You're going to be sharpened. You're going to begin to get stronger. You're going to be better. And friends, I can tell you I'm a better dad, a better husband, a better friend, a better pastor. Because people who have been my friends have wounded me. Who's doing that for you? The second interesting observation about what friends can do for us. They can bring us comfort. They can bring us great comfort. And I think it's important for us to hear this morning that I'm not talking just about a warm hug or sitting around, but bring us that warmth when we need it, that refreshing person. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? There's something about in our DNA that we long to be with people during different seasons in our journey. I love this quote. It was from an unknown person. It says, friendship doubles our joy and divides our grief. Think about that for a moment. It doubles our joy. Don't you in those moments of wanting to share? I mean, when I'm alone and traveling alone, I'm calling my wife. I, I, I got to just tell you this. And sometimes I think it's so brutal because... I'm enjoying this, so I'm thinking, shoot, she should be here too, and somehow it wasn't possible, but here I am, and I want to share that. 
It doubles our joy and, and the chance, whether it's victory in your life, we want to do that, but also when there's grief. There's something about when that gets divided up and you have a, a room full of friends. This is a picture of Haley. It's, she's going to Toronto. She's, uh, she's going to be a senior this next year in high school. This is when she's five. We've told this story a couple times, but I think this is appropriate uh, in sharing kind of this picture. Uh, she had a brain tumor. We found that out really quickly. All of a sudden, the doctor, the surgeon had a day open. Like four days later, we find out our daughter is going to go into surgery, and they could not guarantee she's going to survive it. Crazy medical story in the whole picture. But what I want to tell you is we were shaken. We were in a place of this darkness and grief. And some of you have lost family members and just, or that possibility of and how that just, everything, the, your whole world changes. But I'll never forget, as we were clamoring through our stuff last night, there are just uh, hundreds of letters because it got put in the newspaper. And her story got all these other people sending cards. We had uh, friends in the military that were emailing saying, the troops in Afghanistan are praying for Haley. You want to talk about chopping up grief and going, oh my goodness, it's just, it's like it's, it's dissipating. And there was, it, that reached a peak because there's so many other stories. It reaches a peak when we walk into the waiting room and it's filled. Just people. You know, they say ministry doesn't begin with the words you speak. It means being present. Being a friend means being present. And sometimes you just stand with a person in the midst of grief, and it starts to divide it up. Ah, I could tell you, people that were in that room, uh, it just gave us a sense of comfort. Third thing that friends can do for us is stand with us. It says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This picture is 80,000 shoes of deceased Jews from Auschwitz. I was in Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Israel, twice. First service, I lost it because what flashed through my head was hours of walking through that twice. Of, of the horrible atrocities done to these people. Now, what's amazing, if you read into some of these stories, is the amazing community in these prison camps, in these ghettos, as they called them. Amazing community. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself writes one of his greatest pieces before he dies, called Life Together, the story of Christian community. There's something about in the midst of even the greatest oppression that when men and women are gathered around the name of Christ and relationships are formed, it is powerful. It's almost as if the world disappears around them. Bonhoeffer himself moves in with these people and writes Life Together. Proverbs 17, 17, as Solomon once wrote, a true friend 
loves regardless of the situation, and a real brother exists to share the tough times. Who's sharing tough times with you? Ah, well, let's not feel that conviction. Let's do it this way. Who are you standing with? It's easy for us to point at who's not there for us. Maybe the question this morning is, who are you standing up for this morning? Who are you bringing the comfort to? Who are you sharpening? Investing yourself into relationships. It's such a struggle because what we do here is not programs or buildings. This is a campus and the staff and volunteers and elders, the effort is to get you in relationship with God and others. Because your faith is not lived out in private. It's within a group of people. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more everything else will recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. Could you imagine the four friends lowering their buddy in front of Jesus? There couldn't have been anything else on their mind. They didn't care about what people were going to think. They didn't care about chunks of stuff following other, other people because Jesus can heal them all, right? He'll fix them all right there. They were worried about putting their friend in front of Jesus. This is what their effort was. Everything else disappears. Who's your community? Who is your community? The Hollands are going to come back up and they're going to lead us in response. And maybe we should look at what God has invited us into. You see, every time you go to communion, you don't do that for God. He has invited you to enter in something he's already done for you. And that is he opened up his arms for community. It is not a mistake that 47 years ago, a group of people in a basement named this body, Green Bay, community, church. Maybe a double meaning for the community, but also because we are a community. We're not a place. We're not a program. We're not about a pastor. We are a people that are centered around Jesus Christ, and that is why off the lips of many will hear, do you go to community? Do you go to community? Are you a part of community? Who are you standing for? Who are you there? Who are those five or four friends? I, I got to finish the story about Haley. She, in, she's going to Toronto, so she's fine and unbelievable, miraculous pieces. But we talked about it this week in vacation. And this week in vacation, we were talking about it, and she looks at us, and we completely forgot about this, but said, Mom, Dad, didn't Bobby? Because I've known Bobby since he was like probably this high. That's not true. He was higher. <laughs> at Willow Creek, and I remember uh, she, she said, Dad, Mom, didn't Bobby? He gave me blood. I was like, oh. And, and I think about, I, I can't even look at the guy right now. <laughs> oh, and Haley remembers that. That's what Haley remembers. She goes, he gave me blood. And, and I think about this morning is that's what God gave you. 
his son's blood, to be invited in. Not only that, then she says, or no, I was Trisha that said, and Bobby wrote a song for Haley. We're still trying to find it. But he wrote a song. Friends, the God of the universe gave blood for you to invite you into a song called the church, called community, called friendship. And if you sit every week hoping that that happens to you, you're going to be left disappointed. You're going to be left like Solomon. May we enter into something already done for us called community. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would convict our hearts where we need to stand for and with someone, comfort someone, sharpen someone. Teach us what it means to enter in the gift of community that you've already given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.